Christ, there is no east or west, in him nor north or south, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide world. Come on with it. Hey y'all, this is Chigger Tiggy. Welcome to the podcast. Outside my elementary school, several carloads of white teenagers were waving Confederate flags and chanting, two, four, six, eight, we ain't gonna integrate. Integrate meant mixing of races. This is Birmingham, Alabama, early autumn, 1963. In those days, the mixing of white children and black children in school was called integration. Throughout the Deep South, if you were white, it was assumed that you were opposed to integration. Never mind that nine years earlier, in 1954, the United States Supreme Court had declared racial segregation to be illegal. And it wasn't like the South didn't get the memo. Southern leaders knew darn well that by keeping so-called separate but equal schools, They were violating the United States Constitution. But they didn't care. They were staunch proponents of an extreme version of states' rights. States' rights on steroids. The kind that says each state has the right to interpret the U.S. Constitution in whatever way the majority of that state's people see fit. Who needs Supreme Court justices when your governor is George C. Wallace? In February of 63, in his inaugural address, Wallace had this to say. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. So that's where we are in 1963. I'm in fourth grade in a place that oozes with racism, with teenagers who wave Confederate flags outside my school and chant. Last episode, we mentioned that children often struggle to understand what swirls around them in the grown-up world. But, as we said last week, kids still pick up on the attitudes and emotions of the grown-ups around them. Even at nine years old, we could sense this much. The grown-ups were awash in anxiety, anger, and most of all, fear. I think that if you were in the South in the early 1960s, regardless of your age or your race, you sensed the tension. You sensed something was about to blow. Black civil rights leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, Fred Shuttlesworth in Alabama, and Martin Luther King Jr. in Georgia had had their fill of foot-dragging white politicians who refused to obey the law of the land. And now these black leaders were mobilizing like never before to dismantle the South's Jim Crow way of life. White folks feared that their old world order was slipping away, and so they turned up the heat against the black community. I can't possibly understate the violence that these angry and frightened white folks inflicted on black people. 
Not far from my own house, black churches were bombed. The homes of black leaders were targeted and bombed, sometimes repeatedly. Birmingham, Alabama had infamously earned the nickname Bombingham. That summer, amid all this, Governor Wallace had stood in the doorway to the University of Alabama to try to block the enrollment of the school's first black students. Why would he do that? Why was any of this happening? Well, even among the more moderate white Southerners, the general attitude was, we're just not ready yet. I heard that a lot among the white grown-ups around me. We're just not ready to mix the races. We're just not ready. This refrain had been sung by white folks ever since the Civil War. But by 1963, that song and dance had run its course with the black community. Here's Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Not because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yes, How long? Not, not, long. not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the As the tension rose, the, quote, race problem was about the only topic of conversation everywhere, including in churches. And while the black churches were mobilizing for freedom, most of the white churches were trying to cling on to Jim Crow. My church was no different. But my church, bless its heart, kept subverting itself. In Sunday school, they'd taught us kids a song. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. The song's message was unmistakable. God's love is so big that God doesn't care what color your skin is. God loves you regardless. So while we Sunday school kids may not have understood the whole picture of race relations, some of us could smell a contradiction here. One Sunday, in my Sunday school class, a curious girl innocently asked our teacher, If Jesus loves all the children, what's wrong with the colored children going to school with us? Our Sunday school teacher, a matronly, pear-shaped, normally pleasant-faced grandmother, suddenly looked pinched with irritation and shock. She leaned forward, glared at us with bulging eyes, and said, Listen, the colored children don't want to go to school with you. They love their own schools, their own churches, their own food, their own music. They know they're not supposed to mix with us. The only reason there's trouble now is because a bunch of godless communist Yankees have come down here and stirred up the coloreds. We should all pray to God to forgive the colored people, for they know not what they do. If you were to follow any irritating or troubling issue to its roots, you would find either a Yankee or a godless communist. And the civil rights movement was so horrible that it was the fault of both who had joined together to destroy our way of life. I had heard this attitude a great deal in my childhood, 
and the people who held this attitude could display their good Christian charity by patronizing black people, by saying to them, bless your hearts, you're letting them Yankee communists get you all stirred up. You need to go back to being our maids, our day laborers. You just need to get back in your place. But increasingly, the black community was replying to this with, stop it. We're finished playing your game. We're American citizens and deserve to be treated as no less. Well, sometime after the little girl in my Sunday school class asked our teacher why the black children shouldn't be allowed to come to school with us, my church's racist theology would be challenged even further. Out of the blue, it seemed, a black couple showed up for worship at our Lily White Church. Into the sanctuary they walked, seating themselves in a pew near the front. Even though everybody in the church had been raised with the maxim, it's not polite to stare, on this day that rule of etiquette was suspended. Like everyone else, I couldn't take my eyes off the black man and woman. They were what we'd call a handsome couple. In their late 50s, maybe early 60s, dressed better than anyone in our congregation, they looked like professional people. And I remember thinking, wow, they look smarter, more intelligent than us. As I stared rudely at them, the woman's eye met mine. She smiled at me, warmly, serenely, and I was reminded of my favorite, sweetest school teacher. And I thought, maybe this woman's a school teacher too. Instinctively, I smiled back at her. You can bet on that Sunday, no one paid a lick of attention to the preacher's sermon. I don't think even he paid attention to his sermon. Normally, after the service, the preacher would come to the door of the sanctuary and greet all worshipers as they left. But on this day, he retreated through a side door and locked himself in his office. After worship, one of the church elders took the couple aside and told them, yeah, you guessed it. He said, our congregation is just not ready for integration. The couple smiled warmly, said, God bless you, and then they left, and they would never come back. Or wouldn't they? Looking back across six decades, I see a sense now in which that black couple never really left us. They're still present in my heart, in my mind. Last week, I was chatting on the phone with a lifelong friend who is now a Lutheran pastor in Louisiana. He and I were kids together in that Birmingham church 60 years ago. In our chat last week, he brought up that Sunday. Again, we marveled at the couple's courage to come into such a hostile environment. We recalled how outraged the grown-ups were after the couple had left. Those colored folks were sent here by Yankee communists. Earlier, I said that nobody had paid a lick of attention to the sermon that day. But on second thought, I think that the black couple was the sermon. 
that day. The sermon was their presence among us. And nobody ever forgot that sermon. By simply showing up and smiling warmly into a child's eyes, that couple came into our church and without uttering a word, preached the gospel of love. You know, I'm not an especially religious person anymore, but I do hang on tightly to one little three-word Bible verse. God is love. You know, I first learned that verse in a Sunday school song. Praise Him, praise Him, all ye little children. God is love. For dozens of centuries, people have tried to use God as an instrument of division and even hate. But apparently, God is a sneaky sort. As his minions spew division and hate, God sneaks in and subverts this. He has a little girl stand up and innocently ask, Why shouldn't the black kids come to school with us? He sneaks a courageous couple into a racist church in order to smile peacefully and sow seeds of love. If you're going to be a fellowship of love, then by definition, you just can't turn away people, no matter who they are. Sneakily, subversively, God keeps on teaching that lesson. And thank God for it. So this morning, as I look into your eyes, and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. Thank you so much for being here. Hope you'll follow the podcast at Apple Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or you can catch the feed on chiggertiki.com or by searching chiggertiki on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Y'all be safe, be strong, be kind to one another.